According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have about a minute and 30 seconds of, well, no, probably longer than that, two to three minutes of stuff to get caught up on on the Fishers of Men episode, and then uh, we can proceed on to the first uh, casting out of a demon. First one in this study, anyway. So Luke chapter 5, if you want to open up your Bibles to that text. Luke chapter 5. Do we need to drop the volume down just a tad, or are we okay? All right. It's always an adjustment post, uh, the post Glenn Carnegie adjustment, where uh, we drop the volume back down a little bit. So, All right. Luke chapter 5 then, fishers of men. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside distractions and sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come humbly before the throne of grace this morning and we thank you for the privileges we have to assemble together, to hold a prayer meeting, to teach Bible class, and all the ways that you manifest yourself faithful. We just thank you and give you the praise and give you the glory. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 5. We have really focused in on the terms for uh, partner that are used in this text, the metakoi and the quinanoi. And I hope that we have at least gleaned some uh, principles that apply to being a partaker and a partner. It's a little bit uh, misleading when uh, the terms that are used uh, for uh, partner here are both translated partner when in fact they are different terms. And so um, just to remind ourselves here, Simon Peter, uh, I'll just pick it up in the context of verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners. That's verse 7. They signaled their partners in the other boat. And that's the term metakos or in the plural metakoi. Partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And I like the, the imagery of this because you can imagine now these other, this other boat pulls up and now they're cooperating and they're working together and they're frantically working together because if this boat doesn't come alongside, this boat's going to sink. And so there's an urgency to this uh, cooperation between the metakoi. That is, that a metakos is somebody who is an active partaker in some activity with somebody else and there are uh, dire consequences if this cooperation doesn't take place. Well... And so, too, with you and I as Metacoy of God the Father and Metacoy of Jesus Christ, we should be cooperating with the work that he is engaged in. And if we're not, well, then there's dire consequences for not cooperating in, uh, in uh, the Lord's work. Then uh, Simon Peter saw that he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And he calls him Lord here twice. And we're going to focus on this in the last uh, loose ends that we're tying together in this morning's message. But the second term for partner here in verse 10, uh, so also were James, well, we have companions in verse 9, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, here is a different term for partner. And even though it's translated partner in verse 7 and partner in verse 10, it's a bit misleading because it's metakos in verse 7, it's quinanos or quinanoi in the plural. In verse 10. And so really the bulk of this study has been focusing on the metakoi and the koinonoi aspects of not only this passage, but the New Testament, where you and I are metakoi and koinonoi with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Call it an introductory study to the metakoi principles because there's much more that uh, can be done on being metakoi and koinonoi with Jesus Christ. But all that being done now, we come to the no, don't do that. We come to the final issue here, which is point C in the outline. Although thoroughly unworthy, this is subpoint C under main point six. If you've been keeping track, we had six points of study, uh, and point six had some subpoints. A and a B. B had tons of subpoints, and now C. 
Although thoroughly unworthy, these temporal fishermen will be transformed into eternal fishermen. The contrast there between that which is temporal and that which is eternal. Temporal is something that uh, operates within the confines of time. Eternal, of course, is eternal. It is both within time and beyond time because it transcends time. That they're going to go from being temporal fishermen to eternal fishermen. And the catch uh, for eternal fishermen is just that. It is eternal for the glory of Jesus Christ. The catch for temporal fishermen is just that. It's temporal. It's in time. And the moment you catch that fish, the moment you snag that fish on your hook and pluck him from the water, you just kill that fish. See? So you might as well slice him down the middle and take the, debone him and slap him in the frying pan and fry him up. If you, in fact, do like fish as a, as a matter of your diet. But the moment you pluck that fish out of the water, he dies or begins to die shortly thereafter after flopping around with the last little bit of oxygen that he's got in his, in his gills and whatnot. But the moment you pluck an unbeliever out of the domain of darkness, the moment that you are the tool that the Lord uses to give the gospel to where an unbeliever believes... And at that moment of their salvation, they are transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of, of uh, His beloved Son. At that precise moment, you didn't just kill that fish. He just then, at that very moment, began to live. See, because He was dead prior to being caught. He was dead prior to being snatched out of the sea, so to speak. He is now that He's out of the sea, He is now um, living for the first time ever with spiritual life. So there's quite a... Quite a contrast here, but I want to key in again here on this aspect of unworthiness from verse 8. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In this sense of unworthiness where you identify God's holiness, when you identify our own sinfulness, and when you realize that that conflict between holiness and sinfulness demands a separation. As when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, the angel was posted there, demanded a separation. So here, too, uh, a separation is called for. And yet Peter's going to be reassured that uh, it's not a separation. Yes, he is a sinful man experientially, but positionally, he's a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. He has been justified. He has been sanctified. That there's no need for separation. In fact, just the opposite. We now draw nigh. And far from uh, being banished where... Jesus is going to walk away and, and Peter will never see him again. Uh, Peter is going to be called to become a full-time vocational student teacher. And I hope that we're going to glean some of that terminology today, um, recognizing I'm using modern terms to describe what in the Old Testament they just simply called uh, disciples and followers. Uh, but full-time vocational student teachers is what they were. They were disciples, they were students, but they were also teachers. And that will become clear as well. So far from driving Jesus away, Jesus is now saying, no, follow me, which we find here um, in, this, uh, in this promise. Now, the um, promise to, uh, to become fishers of men at the end of verse 10, Jesus said to Simon, do not fear from now on. All right. Beginning with this very moment and proceeding forward without interruption. That's from now on. It's. We use it the same in English, but sometimes it's a little loose when we say, well, from now on, but we don't really mean it. From now on means beginning at this precise moment, proceeding on into the future without interruption and without conclusion. Because being that we are recipients of eternal life, we can take a from now on statement beyond simply our physical life. We can take a from now on statement on into the realms of eternal life for all eternity. From now on, you will be catching men. And this is going to be their position as apostles. They're going to be apostles of the Lamb. And uh, some of those things we'll reserve for future study. Now, the vocabulary on this I thought was remarkable. That's why I wanted to take the first couple minutes of this morning to delve into it. In both the Matthew and the Mark records, um, which we've only referred to fleetingly, this passage says, Do not fear from now on, you will be catching men doesn't use a term for fishermen. It just says catching. And we'll give you that terminology here in a moment. In Matthew 4.19 and Mark 1.17, though, we have the identical phrases used in, in both Matthew and Mark. I'll just read the Mark text uh, where it says, From now on you will be fishers of men. And in the, in, uh, the Matthew and the Mark text, we begin with simply the noun and uh, modified 
here with the genitive plural of anthropos. It's anthropone. So it's the genitive plural of anthropos. And it's the, you will be the hulies anthropone, the fishers of men, just like we have it in the English language. Fisherman, hulius, in the singular, descriptive of a, of a career, of a vocation. This is something that you do habitually, continually. See, I have fished in the past, but it's been a number of years now, and so I cannot rightly call myself a fisherman. See, uh, anything that you've done once or twice or an occasional period of time in the past doesn't really qualify to say today I am such and such. See, be like calling myself uh, something based upon something I've done once in my life. Wouldn't that be nonsensical. No, they are fishermen. This is what they are by vocation. In fact, the text even says that, that they were fishermen by trade. Uh, and he uses the same exact language to refer to them now as being fishermen. In fact, the only five times that, this, that the word halyus occurs is these five times. Matthew 4, 18 and 19, Mark 1, 16 and 17, and Luke 5, 2. The only five times that we have the words fishermen, the term halyus in the... Uh, in the New Testament, fishers of men. And the, the, as I say, anthropone is a modifier describing what form of fishermen they are. They're not crab fishermen. They're not deep sea fishermen. They're not uh, shark fishermen or whalers or any other type of fishermen. They are human fishermen, which is almost oxymoronic because to be a fisherman, you need to be some kind of fish that you're catching. But no, this is human fishermen or humanermen or something of that sort. They are those that will make their living catching human beings. And the terminology from Luke, though, is slightly different than the Matthew and Mark terminology, which you might expect. A doctor isn't going to do maybe the same uh, terminology as a tax collector, or we don't even know what Mark was doing. But the terminology in Luke where he says, from now on, you will be catching men, doesn't use a fisherman term. Instead, as I flip back to Luke 5 here, it says, apau to noon, from now on, anthropus, plural, but it's not, uh, it's not a modifier for a noun. It's, it's an object of a verb. It's the object of an activity. Men, you will be catching. And here's the future, and here's the verb describing what they're going to be doing to those men. You're going to be catching, and the verb zogron is a participle from zogreo. So here's your verb. You're not going to find zogron in your lexicons anywhere, but you will find zogreo. All right. And zogreo, number uh, 2221, is a, is a very interesting compound of some different things. We've got a similar term in gregoreo, uh, to be watchful, to be on the alert. Gregory is an English name coming from that. Uh, but here's zogreo and uh, zoe for life. All right, Zoas, uh, here's to, not only to capture, but to capture alive. And if you think about it, that's exactly what I said a few moments ago, is that when you're a fisherman, when you catch your fish, the object is of, of catching those fish is that they, that they die. <laughs> you know, you catch them, and when you catch them, they're dead. And once they're dead, then you cook them and you eat them. And that's the whole point to fishing is to kill fish but to kill fish in such a fashion that you are in custody of those dead fish and that you may, you may eat those dead fish. Is this too esoteric this morning? This ought to be simple. But when we get to the verb of zogreo, when we read Luke's account, we realize the, the reality of what we had mentioned is that this activity of catching men, of being a fisher of men, is not to result in their death so we can eat them. It's to result in their life so that we can start to build them up. We can start to turn them into disciples. Remember, the Great Commission is not just get people saved. It's make disciples. And we're going to touch on that passage here in a moment. To be captured alive. And I find it worthwhile to make mention of the fact that once you catch a fish, you can, of course, throw it back. But once you catch a fish and take custody of it and slice it and prepare it, and get ready to eat it. Now you can't throw it back anymore. <laughs> All right. Once you've taken it off the hook, you've deboned it, you've cleaned it, you've washed it, and you've and you've fried it. You're not throwing it back anymore. That does the fish no good to throw it back into the water at that point. But the idea of being captured alive is what we're doing here with men. And when we capture an unbeliever, and we clean him and gut him and cook him. No, we don't do that. But we we make him into a disciple. 
So we train him basic Bible doctrines. We teach him how to confess his sins. We start him on the path to growing in grace and knowledge. We uh, get him into a Bible teaching church. We do everything that's necessary to take a, a spiritual newborn and get him on that path. It's important to note that he can be recaptured. All right. Not in the sense of losing salvation, but he can be recaptured alive in the sense of being held captive in the angelic conflict. And that's where we find the emphasis of 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26, which is the other place where Zogreo occurs in uh, the Greek New Testament beyond Luke 5.10. It occurs in 2 Timothy 2.26. And I hope that we uh, are mindful of this. Verse 24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Now, primarily, Paul's writing to Timothy as a pastor and and we would apply this primarily to pastors, but also to any born-again believer. Uh, you know, you can't just look at this and say, well, that applies to pastor. I have a license to be quarrelsome. Well, guess again. <laughs> We're all bondservants of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of where we are, what our gift is, our ministry, our calling, we should not be quarrelsome. And the reason why is explained. Be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, kindness is not limited to the pastor. We're all expected to be kind. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Able to teach. Not limited to the pastor. And by the way, why would you take a phrase, able to teach, and make that a requirement for somebody who has a spiritual gift of pastor-teacher? All right? That phrase, able to teach, is a remarkable phrase. Not only where it's used here, but where it's used in 1 Timothy 3. Able to teach. If we're going to limit it to teachers, well, then by definition, we've just, we've just uh, created a, a, a circular argument. Patient when wrong. Well, it's not just pastors should be patient. We all should be patient. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. With gentleness. Not just pastors need to be gentle, but gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, is this, uh, is this an evangelism process? Is this, uh, is this where uh, we're giving the gospel to an enemy? Well, no. See, it appears from verse 26, they may come to their senses. This phrase, come to their senses, implies that they have senses to begin with. <laughs> All right. They started with senses and then they lost their senses. Having been, and they may escape from the snare of the devil. They were snared. This is not release out of the bondage of the slave market of sin. That's not a matter of coming to your senses. But when a carnal believer, like the prodigal son, you know what it said when he was out there eating with the pigs? It says he came to his senses. And he returned back to his father's house. So the language of coming back to your senses, the language of escape, the language of snare having been held captive by him to do his will, might on the surface lead somebody to think, uh, well, these are unbelievers that are now being delivered out of Satan's bondage. Not so. Satan does hold bondage over the unbelievers, and the slave market of sin is a real text, and we, we've taught those things many times. And unbelievers do pursue the will of their, of their heavenly father. You of your father the devil, you desire to do the things of your father. But they're not held captive Necessarily, they are rather citizens of that domain, sons of the adversary. And uh, the uh, combination of the uh, verse 25 and verse 26 here makes, uh, I think, makes a solid case that, uh, that these are believers that need repentance, that these are believers that need to be returned back to fellowship, back to walking in the light, back to the will of God again. And uh, this ought to be, um, ought to be, in the forefront of our thinking. And this is part of what we're going to be dealing with in our First Corinthians series as we deal with uh, fallen angels, as we deal with falling away from the faith, as we deal with um, the warnings that occur when people uh, in First Timothy 4 fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. That's where they've been caught in the snare. That's where they've been held captive by him to do his will. They're prisoners of war in the angelic conflict and they need to be released. So... Being captured alive is what's used there in verse 26. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured alive by him to do his will. 
See, and this is another indicator that we're not talking about unbelievers there in the domain of darkness because these folks have been captured alive. They already have Zoe life. They have eternal life. Unbelievers don't have Zoe life, but believers have the Zoe life, the eternal eternal life. Yet they're captured alive and they're hindered from any divine viewpoint production. So when we engage in being fishers of men. We want to keep in mind the fact that we are catching these fish alive, that in fact the action of our catching them is giving them that life, supplying them that life. But we want to do more than just simply get them saved. The Christian way of life and the Great Commission is more than just simply a get people saved so they get people saved so they get people saved kind of pyramid scheme. All right. The aspect of the Great Commission is to make disciples of which getting them saved is only the first step. But the fact that we've captured them alive helps us to understand that we need to keep them alive, that we need to uh, ground them in the word of God. We need to build them up in the faith. So all of that being said, let's remind ourselves what the Great Commission is so we can turn to Matthew 28. And that'll be a good transition into our next episode, which comes from Mark chapter one, Matthew chapter 28. Some final admonishments on being fishers of men. Anybody here do any fishing regularly, occasionally, periodically? You know, when you're fishing, there's an awful lot of nothing. <laughs> there's an awful lot of not catching anything. And, but you're keeping your hook in the water. You're keeping the bait on the hook. You're keeping the, uh, if you use the, the bobs or the floaters or whatever to keep the, to keep the uh, hook from sinking too low or rising too high and whatever you do with your sinkers and your bobs. All right. But primarily... If you, th if you think about it, the, the, the time you spend actually reeling the fish in is quite limited compared to the time you spend keeping that hook in the water. See, And I hope that offers us an encouragement when you give the gospel and you plant seeds and you maintain your witness and you, you're constantly, um, you don't seem to be bringing any fish out of the water. Well, what you're doing is you're keeping bait on the hook, you're keeping the hook in the water and you're a fisherman. Whether or not you actually pull the fish out, well, the Lord takes care of that. It might not be you. It might be somebody else coming along and pulling that, foot, that fish out. So now when we remind ourselves of the Great Commission here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Keep the authority principle in mind because we're going to be dealing with that when we get to casting out of demons. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you have not already done so due to, in previous Bible classes, underline, make disciples. Because that's the verb in this verse. That's the imperative in this verse. A lot of times we get wrapped up in the word go because it comes first and it seems forceful. Go. And because, you know, a preacher, you know, a preacher can preach a pretty good exhortation message on go you know and getting people riled up and motivated and you know get off your rear end and don't just sit there and be observers but go and a lot of stress gets laid on go but go is an aorist participle and really is uh, not the impact of this passage the aorist participle simply lays out the conditions in which the verb gets done you could render it as you go wherever you go in the conduct of your daily life but in the conduct of your daily life isn't really as forceful and dramatic and preachable as go. <laughs> All right. And make disciples. Make disciples is the primary imperative. It is the command for the disciples, for you and I, for all believers of the church age. This is the Great Commission to make disciples. Take someone who is not a disciple and turn him into a disciple. Now, there's two activities that are described with that baptizing and teaching those are both present participles and so the aorist participle of go sets the parameters but the two present participles describe the contemporaneous activity of how do i make disciples well in these two ways baptizing them and teaching them see now is there any evangelism in any of that sure if the person is an unbeliever but that's just simply understood the word evangelism doesn't appear in this passage neither does the term gospel the imperative is make disciples. So, 
If you're dealing with a, a non-disciple believer who's redeemed but not really growing anywhere, what are you going to do to him? You're going to make him into a disciple. Right? If he's not baptized yet, you want to teach him. Don't separate baptism from teaching. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tell him what his identification in Christ is all about. His position in Christ, dead, buried, and raised in Christ. And baptize him. And put him on a path of teaching. Instruct this uh, baby believer that he needs to grow. He needs to learn. That's how you make disciples. Now, if the person you're dealing with is an unbeliever, are you going to start with all that teaching stuff? No. Obviously, you're going to give him gospel information. Obviously, you have to lead him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then you baptize him. Then you start him on that process of growth. But it begins with, it all comes back to that primary application of make disciples. And that's what we do when we're fishing. We're making disciples. And we might be fishing among a sea of unbelievers, in which case we want to give them saved, get them saved and put them on the path of teaching. We might also be fishing in a sea of baby believers, non-disciple believers. Because don't, don't think that believer and disciple are synonyms. There are a ton of believers out there that are not disciples. And the stipulation for being a disciple is in John 8. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So born again believers that are redeemed, they're going to go to heaven when they die, but they're not abiding in the word of God. They are not Methetes disciples. We need to make disciples. So the Great Commission is not just evangelism oriented. It's also edification oriented as we uh, make disciples. All right. Since you're in Matthew 28, that means you are uh, also in Mark chapter 1, unless you have to flip a page. I've got them both on the same page. And let's look at episode number 5 in the Life of Christ study. I guess I should see if there's any questions on the Fishers of Men passage. Anything at all on partakers, partners, fellowship, fishing? All right, episode number five then. Demoniac healed on the Sabbath day. The text for this follows the Fishers of Men passage in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of uh, Mark. Actually, Matthew doesn't cover this event. Um, if, in the Gospel of Luke, however, though, we've got to back up a little bit because the Fisher of Men passage happens in Luke 5, but the demoniac healed on the Sabbath day happens in Luke 4. I think the best order of it, though, is to keep it in Mark's order. Um, not totally subtle on that, but I'm fairly convinced on that because of the increase that we see in the uh, conflict and the, uh, the uh, narrative, the very straight narrative that we have it here in Mark where we have the disciples, plural, going into Capernaum with Jesus Christ. All right? So Mark chapter 1, 21 through 28, the demoniac healed on the Sabbath day. The, the correlating passage is Luke 4, 31 through 37. This event is not covered in the Gospel of Matthew and it's not covered in the Gospel of John. So we only have two Gospels to compare. We're going to use mainly the Mark record, but we will bring in uh, some of the Luke information here shortly. Now, you see where verse 20 ends off here in Mark 1. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they went away to follow him. And uh, we dealt with some of that in uh, the previous classes. Then verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes quite a commentary on the form of teaching that they've had previously or up till now. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. I don't know if you spotted all the immediately's in that passage, but uh, that's, a, that's a tag word for Mark. He was very fond of immediately, and he used it um, in many places <laughs> in fact, throughout the book. We find immediately, euthus, almost every other passage. Now, are you ready? 
<laughs> you know, I mean, we already uh, commented upon the fact that in the First Corinthians series, we're dealing with idolatry and that there are no gods, there are no idols, but really there are many gods and many idols and many lords. And we're dealing with angelic conflict information in the First Corinthians series. And we've noted that in the process of teaching such things, that the adversary doesn't like that stuff to get taught, that it will increase the angelic conflict, that it will lead to... You know, increased marital testing, family testing, financial testing, health testing, you know, you name it. Expect the, uh, expect the heat to be cranked up. Well, <laughs> here we are again. See, in my own study, when things get a little deep and a little dark, I think, okay, well, I'll take a break. I'll just put First Corinthians aside now. I'll switch over to Life of Christ. And, oh, there's demons there, too. What do you know? <laughs> All right. But it's good, though, because it's going to complement very well with what the, uh, the First Corinthians series is dealing with and even what the Hebrew series is dealing with when Glenn Carnegie teaches about the superiorities of Christ, how he is, has a name much greater than the angels and the application of it there. This episode marks the first event with Jesus Christ involved in both a teaching and training ministry with full-time vocational disciples. First time. Now, previously, he had disciples. Previously, he was teaching them. Previously, he was observing while they were engaged in a baptism ministry. It's not certain that he was training them in that baptism ministry. All the evidence points to the fact that they received that training from the baptizer when they were a part of John the baptizer's training ministry. I suppose you could say that it's possible that he was teaching and training them in, in that episode when they were baptizing and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the things there. But even if that was a training ministry, they were not full-time vocational disciples. They, had, they were simply disciples for a season, living in the region of Judea, uh, studying under John the Baptist and studying under Jesus Christ, and then returning back to Galilee and doing what? Going back to their fishing careers back when fishing seasons back and back when uh, they uh, were taking back up their vocation again feeding their families and doing all the rest but with the fishers of men passage that we dealt with for the last three weeks they are leaving that secular career they are following jesus christ as full-time vocational disciples paid student teachers not just students but we're going to see when they're ready, they're going to, now of course they're going to start off just students, but we're going to see when they're ready, they're going to be sent out on their first, uh, we don't call it internships, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, we can give it modern vocabulary, on their first training assignments, their first teaching ministries as teaching students, student teachers. All right, but they're being trained, they're being paid for this, they're being supported for this. They're leaving that career behind. And this is uh, the pattern of not only Jesus Christ and the disciples here, but this is Paul's pattern with his disciples. Uh, sometimes, though, when the funds got thin, then the disciples had to work or Paul had to work. When it got really thin, Paul was a tent maker in Corinth, for example, with Priscilla and Aquila. But when the funds were coming in, when they were supported by grace-oriented believers, not only was Paul supported, his students were supported. Not only was Jesus supported, his disciples were supported, all 12 of them. So much so they needed a treasurer. And we know who they picked for that, don't we? <laughs> All right. Why didn't they pick Matthew? You'd think the tax collector would be a natural... Uh, maybe they didn't trust him. <laughs> but the first event with Jesus Christ involved in both a teaching and training ministry with full-time vocational disciples. And so the conflict ramps up. The conflict ramps up. Training men for the ministry? Think the adversary likes that? Absolutely not. Young man thinks he's going to be a pastor teacher? You think the adversary likes that? Absolutely not. And if they can shoot these men down now, before they're fully trained, fully equipped, fully armored, if they can uh, be shot down now where they lose their credentials, they lose their qualifications, they fall into... Uh, uh, unrepentant sin patterns or other such things that would disqualify them from a First Timothy 3 qualification, all the better. You better believe the devil would like to get a hold of these disciples at this, uh, at this fragile state. Setting aside secular careers marked a turning point. Setting aside secular careers marked a turning point. That's sub point A. 
I don't believe I stated point one. So for those folks listening on tape or MP3, point one, this episode marks the first event with Jesus Christ involved in both a teaching and training ministry with full-time vocational disciples. Subpoint A, setting aside secular careers marked a turning point. A significant turning point, which not only takes up this passage here, but also addresses later disciples towards the end of the Lord's ministry in Luke 9, 57 through 62 and elsewhere. Let's grab that Luke 9 reference. For instance, when Matthew's called, we haven't seen Matthew yet, but when Matthew's called, follow me, and he leaves his tax shop and he goes and he follows. It's a turning point. For a man preparing for the ministry, it's a turning point. When he begins to train, it's a turning point. When he completes his training, it's a turning point. And when he leaves all other secular outside work, it's a turning point. Luke 9, 57 through 62. And I notice the context for this is because in verse 51, uh, the days were approaching for his ascension and he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So this is approaching the cross. This is much later in our study from where we are now in our current episode in the Galilean ministry. So verse uh, 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And that's all he says to that man, because in verse 59, he says to somebody else, he says to another, follow me. This man was not told, follow me. This man had said, I will go wherever you, uh, wherever you go. And Jesus Christ uh, rebukes him with uh, a message here that pertains to uh, Temporal life uh, giving for spiritual life priorities and other things here. Um, this man wasn't willing to support Jesus even with a room for the night. And now he wants to follow Jesus and be a supported student. It's quite a rebuke. So he doesn't. that, that man doesn't get an invitation to follow, but another one does. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to give much more depth and obviously teaching than we're giving here now. We're just glancing at this now. First man uh, was rebuked for his lack of financial support and his lack of grace orientation, and he was rejected as a candidate. See, nothing says that, that Jesus has to take every so-called disciple candidate that wants to come along. Any more than uh, Jim Myers, for example, takes every prospective student that comes along at the uh, Word of God Bible College in Kiev. There's quite a few that they weed out and, and, uh, and uh, not admit as students. Permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, Jesus said, follow me. This man has an excuse. The indication is that dad's not dead yet, but, you know, he wants to, I'll get to you as soon as my dad is dead, as soon as that's all taken care of, and he's buried, we settle the will, and all that's done, then I'll follow you. And uh, Jesus said, no, the opportune time is now. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And, and here's where we get the real impact is in verse 62. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back. And there's the, the, the passage that really highlights the turning point, that this is a turning point. When if you've put your hand to the plow, if you have stepped forward in this full-time service, Looking back is a snare. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right. So this setting aside of secular careers marked a turning point, And it certainly did in the life of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Those four definitely, and probably very quickly then, uh, Philip and Bartholomew, and then not much longer after that, Matthew and the rest. It's a turning point. So point B. Training faithful men who will be able to train faithful men will become the pattern for the dispensation of the church. Training faithful men who will be able to train faithful men will become the pattern for the dispensation of the church. 2 Timothy 2.2 Because Jesus is not just gathering disciples. He is gathering disciples who will someday be apostles. And those apostles will someday have their disciples. See, just as, you know, Paul would end up with Timothy and Titus and, 
Aristarchus and Archippus and all these other followers, Demas and all these other followers of, of Paul. Well, these apostles started off as followers of Jesus Christ. All right. And my analogy is breaking down because Paul was not a follower of Jesus Christ during Christ's earthly ministry. But Peter was. And Peter was a disciple who became an apostle who then trained other men. Point in fact, the author of this gospel, Mark, was a disciple of the apostle Peter. See. And on and on. All of the apostles training men who will be able to train others who will be able to train others. And I hope that that nags away at the back of our minds. It's... Um, a little bit different from how the uh, training took place in the dispensation of Israel. Under the Jewish stewardship, where they had a temple, where they had a fixed location, where they had a, a limited priesthood. See, not everyone could be a priest. Only the family of Aaron, descendants of Aaron in the tribe of Levi could be priests. And training was fixed there. And they would go there for their training. See, that's not the pattern that's being set up, though, for the church age. There's no... Mecca that we can go to. There's no Jerusalem temple we can go to. There's no Rome, you know, papal see that we can go to to receive our formal training, to receive our sanctioning by the Pope or the high priest or the chief uh, imam of Islam or whatever have you see. We have faithful men teaching faithful men teaching faithful men. And that's the pattern. So join me in Second Timothy 2. Because we have four generations here in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy's not his biological son, but he's his spiritual son, having led him to the Lord possibly, but having trained him for the ministry, definitely. And so he could be a spiritual son in terms of salvation, or at least a spiritual son in terms of a trained pastor teacher. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And, I, and there is a key there, too, in terms of local church training for the ministry. It should be in the presence of many witnesses. It's not something secret where, you know, the pastor trains the new pastor and is all off hidden away somewhere out of public view. But it's in the presence of many witnesses. See, this is in the master-apprentice method of, of training, which is the biblical method for pastors here laid out. And uh, for many years was the model for all sorts of uh, crafts and trades and throughout, uh, throughout history. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. So there's your third generation. If Paul's first, Timothy's second, then faithful men in this verse are the third generation. Timothy... Even though right now he's a young man, even though right now he's just finished his training and he's in his first pastorate, so to speak, um, he is expected at some point to be able to train faithful men. He will be equipping them, the next generation. They don't have to go back to Paul. And in fact, they can't because Paul's going to be dead here shortly. They don't have to go to Jerusalem. They don't have to go to some other church. They don't have to go get credentials. They have to be trained by, faithful, by a faithful pastor and then their credentials are going to be the flock that they edify. That's your third generation. And then those faithful men, it says at the end of verse 2, who will be able to teach others also. There's your fourth generation. So Paul, generation 1. Timothy, generation 2. Faithful men are generation 3. And others also, generation 4. Four generations in this one verse for how it is that generations of pastor teachers are trained, equipped, prepared, and launched into the ministry. And the phrase, able to teach others also, is extraordinary. If you believe that the equipping of the saints for the work of service is the function of the local church, and if you believe that the pastor teacher is the gift for that local church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, then men with a pastor-teacher gift are equipped to train other pastor-teachers. And I believe that fully. I believe that biblically. Based on Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Based on 2 Timothy 2, 2 and other passages. And uh, it's interesting when pastor-teachers feel as if they can't. 
feel as if, well, you know, they're not qualified, they wouldn't know how to do it, they wouldn't know where to start, don't really feel. No, they need to go off to seminary somewhere, see. Now, I think there's a time and a place for seminary, and I believe there's a time and a place. Michael, can you help our visitor out here for a moment? Thank you. There's a time and a place for seminary, and some men do very well in seminary. Some men, that's why we keep those doors open on Wednesday mornings. Some men, uh, and seminaries, I'm not being negative of seminary, and you say, well, you're just picking on a seminary because you didn't go to one. <laughs> no, I'm saying that there is a place. God uses his Peters and he uses his Pauls, all right? Paul went to the greatest of seminaries. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, had the greatest academic credentials you could imagine. Peter was a fisherman. And he used, God used both Peter and Paul. So there's a place, I believe, for seminary-trained men and a place for um, pastor-teacher-trained men. Now, this is the pattern. And this is what we're going to see. And these are the things we're going to be praying over as we consider the expansion uh, opportunities for Austin Bible Church. See, we're not limiting our thinking to external earthly things. Parking lots, an earthly thing. Auditorium seats, earthly thing, uh, toilet capacity, earthly thing, classrooms, nursery space, offices, square footage, earthly things. All right. We're trying to examine as well the ministry expansion as God the Father increases our capacity. Can we, will we, when we, when will we establish a Bible college? When will we start training men to be pastor teachers? When will we um, expand uh, our missions outreach in terms of hosting a, 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 an overseas missionary, being a, a mission organization ourselves, being sponsors for men that have been trained. Maybe some of the men we train aren't going to be domestic pastor teachers. They're going to be overseas pastor teachers, which we call missionaries. See, there's a whole lot of things right now that we are praying over, dreaming over, in some cases drooling over. All right. And the idea of being able to um, start a Bible college and train men for the ministry is one that we have biblical authority to do. Because it's faithful men who teach faithful men who teach faithful men. That's the, that's the uh, credentials, as it were, for training men for the ministry. All right. This is what we have now. And it's no wonder when Jesus walks into the synagogue... And when he's got now disciples with him, that is student-teacher disciples with him, full-time vocational disciples with him, that it's going to launch a satanic attack. And that's what we have. So we can start to expect around here, by the way, when we teach these kind of, uh, these kind of things. All right. Randall, does Michael need any help out there? Good to have a couple burly men around on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> All right. Now, point two. This episode marks the first confrontation with demonic powers since Jesus' victory over Satan's temptations. This episode marks the first confrontation with, with demonic powers. And you might even want to put open confrontation, because I believe there have been things under the radar. There have been some things under the scenes. But this is the first open confrontation, where there's actual dialogue between Jesus and this demon. Where, uh, like we had in the wilderness temptation. Thank you, Michael. There's dialogue back and forth between Christ and this demon, just as there was between Christ and the devil in, in uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and the Mark 1, the, the temptation passages we've looked at. This episode marks the first open confrontation with demonic powers. And, uh, and that's uh, not surprising. You think the devil was just going to give up when, uh, when Jesus was able to cite three passages from Deuteronomy and resist the, the snares that were there? No, not going to give up at all. We understand that from Luke chapter 4. So subpoint A, Satan had left Jesus until an opportune time. Subpoint A, Satan had left Jesus until an opportune time. Luke 4.13. Luke 4.13. 
verse 12, Jesus answered and said to him, it, it, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, I believe there was much more than just the three that are recorded. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. See, knowing that, run away and fight another day. <laughs> knowing that um, in his humanity there would be opportunities. That uh, deity, of course, cannot be tempted. Deity cannot sin, although maybe Satan in his insanity thinks it can. But humanity can certainly grow weak. Satan knows all about humanity. He's been watching humanity for 4,000 years up to this point. He knows about human weaknesses. He knows that we have uh, those days, right? One of those days or two of those days or a whole week of those days. And so he can just wait for one of those days. When humanity is struggling. And now here comes open confrontation again. That opportune time. I think it's very important. Because obviously when we deal with Ephesians 6. And believers in the armor. Is that an opportune time? If you're in fellowship. Suited up in your armor. Walking in the light. With the sword of the spirit. Word of God in your hand. Is that an opportune time? Of course not. The devil wants no part of you there. If you're in that kind of armor and in that kind of uh, occupation with Christ, with, with this relaxed mental attitude, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Simple. Those are the easiest battles on earth. But when you drop your sword, in other words, the word of God is no longer at hand, and you start taking off your armor piece by piece, and you're not fully suited up, is that an opportune time? Oh, yeah. Now, now you're looking nice and tasty. Oh, yeah. See, remember when, when uh, in Job chapter 1, when the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, oh yeah, and you put a hedge about him on every side. Now, how did Satan know the hedge was there on every side? Because Satan had tried every side. He had gone to the front, to the back, to the left, to the right, up top, down beneath. He had tried every single side and he had found that that hedge was everywhere. And he said, you know, drop that hedge and I'll go get him. Just like believers with our armor. Drop your armor and he'll go get you. At an opportune time. He's not stupid. How about um, the, the Peter passage there says, He prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. You know what, what that's about, don't you? The roar is designed to instill fear. Because until he can instill fear, if, if, if you're walking in love and perfect love casts out all fear, if you've got your armor on and you're proceeding in the Christian way of life, he can't devour you. So he roars. That's the whole point to the roar. So that you'll respond in fear. So that you drop your sword. So that you take off running. See, that's the whole point to the roar. You guys watch the National Geographic Channel, don't you? Or Discovery Channel or Animal Planet? Or, I mean, there's got to be, what, 15 of those animal things on the cable list. I haven't figured that out yet. That, that idiot from Australia that, rescued, that wrestles uh, crocodiles and stuff. I mean, that guy's insane. But have you seen lions on those shows? They're sneaky. You know, watch your, watch your house cat in the backyard. They're, they're, they're quiet when they're stalking. And the whole point for the roar... That kind of blows your cover, right? When you roar and you can hear it for miles. Is that you get over here, the big lion gets over here, the daddy lion gets over here and he roars. And the antelope and the deer and the, the, everybody else that's out there get scared and they take off running. You know, the wildebeests. All right? I just like saying wildebeest. And the, the wildebeest gets scared and so they take off running. And that's the whole point. Because the, the one that was roaring wasn't the problem. The problem was, was all these lionesses now that are hidden over here in the low grass and they're, proud, uh, they're crouched down ready to pounce. But because they've instilled fear, there goes the herd. And then the stragglers, the weak and sick ones that are, can't quite catch up with the rest of the herd, they get picked off. All right? So, let's, let's be mindful of this opportune time. And notice what Satan thought the opportune time was. Satan thought the opportune time was in church. <laughs> he thought the opportune time was in the synagogues. That's where he felt the opportune time was going to be. Stop and consider how active is Satan 
and his minions, his structure of rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers, stop and consider how active are they in local churches? I think it's a lot more active than you and I would care to admit. That's why local churches, pastors, deacons, elders, you better have your armor on. You better. There's a reason why we need shepherds to guard against the wolves. Because there's not only wolves out there, there's wolves in here wearing sheep, you know, sheep outfits, sheep clothing. They're in the synagogues. They're in the local churches. And of course, they've got no resistance in most local churches where there's no Bible teaching. Up till now, in this synagogue, there has been no teaching with authority. The scribes weren't giving it to them. The scribes were teaching with manipulations, teaching with motivations to their own uh, selfishness, their own exaltation, wanting the seats in the marketplaces, wanting the respectful greetings, wanting the accolades. That's why they were teaching. They weren't teaching with power. They were teaching with uh, personal interests at heart. Jesus Christ comes in and starts teaching with authority. And, uh, and this demon can't, uh, can't abide by it. So when I stop and consider the uh, spiritual condition of many churches in our country today, it's a depressing thing to think about. <laughs> because those churches have no defense whatsoever against any kind of demons coming in there. Because those churches haven't had teaching with authority for decades. Speaking in general, of course, there's always exceptions. But just stop and consider, when you've got a church where the pastor says there's no such thing as Satan, stop and consider how infested that church is going to be with Satan, with, with fallen angels, with demons. Now, we have already covered one synagogue, and that was in Nazareth. And that's where I think... We, we didn't have any overt explosions. We didn't have any verbal testimonies of demons. But what we did have was a motivation to murder. And since motivation to murder often comes from, you are of your father the devil, Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. He was a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning. Quite often we find untruth and murder paired up. And when we see such things as this murderous rage in Nazareth, they want to drive him off the cliff in Luke 4. You have to stop and wonder, what kind of demonic impulses were there? What kind of little whispers were there saying, kill him, kill him? Say, was it strictly human that did that? Was it strictly the human sin nature inside of all these people that all simultaneously got this murderous impulse? Now, we can get impulses from our own sin nature. We don't need the devil whispering into our ear to make us do stuff. We can sin all day long with no demons on the planet because we have a sin nature. And we have our own voice inside us, our own... It wants to do its own flesh. It wants to do its own... Uh, the flesh wants to do its own lusts. But for a whole crowd of people... To, see, those, the, the sin natures don't communicate with one another. Your sin nature is yours, mine is mine, and so forth. But for a whole crowd of people, all of a sudden, to get the identical impulse. See, that's more indicative of an external influence rather than, you know, 50 or 100 internal influences, all coincidentally getting enraged at the same time and, and impulse to murder. So we have the first conflict there in the synagogue of Nazareth. And uh, but now this one in Capernaum, and now this one is very directly noted as being demonic because the demons... Uh, shouts forth the demon uh, starts screaming and starts testifying it's interesting how the demon can't help himself but testify uh, there's a certain aspect to the glory of jesus christ where the creation cannot deny it and uh, where even uh, they tried at the end of the ministry when he's walking in the triumphal entry and uh, the children are singing hosanna and the disciples are saying you know make him shut up make him shut up and Jesus says, that's not going to happen. Even the stones will start crying out now if you try to stop this, uh, try to stop this chorus. This chorus is going to happen. And um, there, there must be an aspect to that that, that occurs every single time that these demons are being exposed because it's very frequently that they're exposed for who they are, they're cast out, and they're testifying to who the Son of God actually is. 
All right, well, this is where we'll pick it up one week from today, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we pray for continued protection, that you would hedge us about, protect uh, us here in these services uh, from any physical or spiritual harm that might take place, protect our church building property, the house next door, the cars in the parking lot. Father, there are, uh, there are folks wandering through here and there, and, and their, uh, their desires are unknown, and their uh, demonic influence is unknown. So, Father, we just uh, look to you to offer uh, provision and protection, and we thank you. We pray for this individual that came in this morning. Whatever their needs are, Father, meet those needs. Lead them to Christ and bless them abundantly. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.